in order for people to realize something about our Western perspective, they need to start shooting at me. Because I think it's really when I put myself as an artist on the line and fuel that discussion that we learn more about ourselves, and I learn more from it. That was Simona Orberg-Kern, and this is Nordic Portraits. Simona Orberg-Kern is a visual artist, filmmaker, activist, and aviator. She is perhaps best known for flying a tiny single-prop airplane from Denmark into the heart of war-torn Afghanistan, which formed the subject for her 2006 documentary, Smiling in a War Zone. Never a stranger to controversy, Simona was the artist behind the much-discussed official portrait of Prime Minister and NATO General Secretary Anas Fogh Rasmussen. Simona, welcome to Nordic Portraits. Thank you so much. Simona, I wanted to start by taking you all the way back to January 2002. The world was obviously still reeling from the impact of September 11. You were in a cafe in Copenhagen reading the newspaper and stumbled upon an article about a 16-year-old Afghani girl named Fayel. And I just wondered what it was about her story that gripped you so much to consider embarking on this incredible adventure. Well, here was this girl all her life in war pretty much, locked in her apartment with a desire to learn and live. She was unable really to get out, but she, despite these really harsh circumstances, was still able to have a dream. She had this dream. She wanted to fly. She wanted to be a fighter pilot as a woman in Afghanistan. No more Taliban. She wanted to fight back. And that really hit me because my success in the art world is really based on women that were flying military aircraft during the Second World War. They used the situation of a war to create a scene for themselves to go out and do things which was not acceptable for women in their time. So war was a moment of opportunity when the social structure collapse, that's when you can reconstruct if you are there and able and awake. I thought that now Fayal was in this situation where she had this really strong dream. Taliban was away. Now was the time, a very short window of opportunity. So I thought I wanted to bring on the wings I had got from these women from the Second World War and see if she could attach them to her body and take off into the sky. At the same time, I had a long waiting art project. I was really waiting for the opportunity to discuss with the US Space and Air Command their concept of full-spectrum dominance. I'm very interested in the sky and the notion of flying. This idea that space and sky is really the place where we can project our dreams and feel free 
Yet at the same time, it's the most controlled, commercial and military place on, on our whole planet. I mean, this thin air around is really the battleground between imagination and control, between individual freedom at its most and the joint idea of security. Hmm. So what happened next? Well, um, I called the Pentagon. As you do. Of course you call Pentagon if you want to go into a war zone. And they said, well, sorry, ma'am, it's, <laughs> it's a military operation area. No private flights are permitted. But then I went to Copenhagen Airport where they have this office and, and they, they are planning their flights. And there was a woman working for the air control unit. And she said, Simone, I mean, this is like a really cool idea. This girl, she should definitely fly. And then she brought me the AIP, which is like the rule book for the air for Afghanistan. And she said, well, here on page whatever, it says that humanitarian flights are permitted. So you can have a special permission to fly if it's a humanitarian flight. And what could possibly be more humane than this girl should fly? And that was the start of having a series of people who were actually employed in a system that should stop my flight, yet they were finding holes in the system to make this dream come true. And this is a beautiful thing. All the people in the military and flight system that really should avoid this kind of art project to happen helped Fayel in Afghanistan to fly in the end. It was an air bridge. Describe the plane itself that you were flying in, because it's very small. Well, it was a baby plane. It's, um, it's an aircraft from 1962. Uh, it's really like if you were Bill or Bob and wanted to be the right stuff, kind of going to the moon, but didn't really have the ability or the powers <laughs> to do so, you could buy this really cheap airplane. It's like a Volkswagen of the air, like the most simple airplane, two-seat canvas on a metal structure, the smallest engine, and um, it shouldn't really be able to fly that far. So I'm an artist, didn't have a lot of money. I called around my friends in the Danish aviation community, and they said, well, try to call this farmer down in the south of Denmark. I think he has an old airplane in the barn somewhere. And this Richard, the farmer, he said, well, yeah, I have an old airplane standing. I think we can start it up. So I went down to the farm and we got the dust and the hay and the chickens of the airplane and gave it like a little bit of snaps, alcohol in the engine and fired up and, you know, check right, check left. And we started it from within the barn over the fields. And I was like, you know, is this thing going to fly? And a bit of gaffer tape, it was ready to go to Afghanistan. The Danish Air Force was uh, already planning missions in Afghanistan and the Danish Special Forces were already there. So I contacted them to have like a worst case scenario and they said, you know, this is suicide, you, you really can't go. And the Danish Broadcast Corporation, I've done f movies with them before, they sent a letter around in the different department of the Danish Broadcast Corporation warning people that this crazy lady was coming, trying to persuade them 
to sponsor the journey and do a documentary about it. And they should say no, because the Danish Broadcast Corporation do not support suicide missions. <laughs> and when I heard that, I knew immediately I was on the right track. How did you persuade your then boyfriend, Magnus, to tag along? Well, he didn't want to go. I mean, he uh, he's a sensible guy and he saw a lot of problems with it. But I think it's also one of those opportunities that you can't pass. And he knew I was going anywhere. And to have a girlfriend running around in an area with five million landmines, you know, I don't think he could sit back. I think it's much easier to be on a mission than to sit home and be worried about somebody you love being mm. out. So he decided to to come along. You had a lot of challenges, largely due logistically to the fact that the plane could only fly 450 kilometers before needing to refuel. Was that about right? Yeah, every time you have to pee and, and you go <laughs> like uh, 90 miles an hour. <laughs> and well, if there's no headwind and if there's a headwind, you go slower than the trucks on the highway. Uh, and you have to land all the way. It was like 33 landings just to get to Afghanistan. So, I mean, there are two layers in this. This is an art project, which is like a performance. And then it's a performance playing on myth and culture in the flying world. So it's really this thing about testing military and commercial aviation systems up against their own mythology. Mm. So I'm dressed as a performance figure when I go off. And you can also hear when I tell the story, I, I go into this story mode of, you know, this adventure. And so it was really like a two-stringed uh, thing where on the one side, it's a cool art project and very strategic, thought out. And then I also have to be truly that figure, <laughs> this aviatrix from the 1930s or something like that, that everybody I meet will recognize as something they wanted to do themselves if they could, if it wasn't that we were living in modern times. Well, you did look like at the time a mix between Amelia Earhart and Lawrence of Arabia. Did wearing that outfit help you create this persona and in doing so, did that provide you with confidence when you found yourself in these extremely dangerous situations? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was you know, you can just imagine how much red tape I was flying into. I didn't have the right permissions and everybody was naysayers, of course. I mean, I met so much nay that you cannot imagine it yet. I just had to play it like every person say no was actually saying yes. So it was like a 50 hours in the air, but actually took three months just to hit Afghanistan. And then it was nine months before I was home. So I built a performance figure on something between Charlie Chaplin, The Little Prince, Lawrence of Arabia. And then I added some Lene Riffenstahl into it. So it's really propaganda myth that I take on, but... The way that I understand doing performance is that I have to be it. I have to truly believe I am also that character. And then I delegate my artistic me into Magnus 
So I split my person. So when I meet the, the people, I have to persuade. I am truly naive. I think that's really important in the way that I understand this kind of performance. I cannot fool people. I cannot fool myself. It has to be part of my personality when I'm doing it. I'm also the other part, but I'm really there. And I will also truly die if I miscalculate the situation. And I will take Magnus with me. So that said, when you reached Iran, yeah. there were some serious barriers to you getting further to Afghanistan. Can you tell me a little bit about what happened there? I mean, I think the first really challenging started already in Turkey because I needed really the Turkish Air Force to work with me. Uh, the US was controlling the airspace above Afghanistan at the time, but the different uh, coalition forces was taking turns on controlling the airspace over Kabul. And obviously, even if I busted the military airspace of Afghanistan, when I was flying with a young woman, possibly a child, I needed permission to do that flight. So I was going to make friends with the Turkish Air Force. And I knew that the Turkish Air Force had the first woman combat educated pilot. That was Sabir Gökçen, Atatürk's adopted daughter, who was flying combat missions against the Kurds in already 1938. Wow. And back then, Turkey had more female fighter pilots than all Europe and Norway together. Anyway, so I had to be friends. So I wanted to fly with these Turkish Air Force pilots. So I had also made friends with the chief of the Danish Air Force. He had been on many private occasions with the Turkish Air Force general and wrote him a personal letter saying, Dear General, dear colleague, a very persistent lady is crossing your territory. And then he was sort of warning against me and saying that the Danish Air Force was not helping, yet they was trying to avoid that I got really hurt and they knew they couldn't stop me. And he asked if it was possible they could sort of maybe help a little bit. So anyway, I landed on this Turkish Air Force base. It was in the middle of an exercise, military exercise. And they decided that I could go out and fly with some of their female fighter pilots in that exercise because I knew that they hadn't trained interception of small aircraft, which, of course, in this terrorist times would be a good thing to exercise. And I said, well, you can... You can exercise on me. <laughs> and they actually tumbled my airplane uh, because they flew in front of me. And I was hit by the wake turbulence from behind. And unfortunately, Magnus had opened the door to get the good shot and unbuckled his seatbelt. So he was actually outside the airplane, just holding place by the wind on the door. So when my airplane stalled, the wind on the door went off. But luckily, I sort of spun to the same side where Magnus <laughs> was sort of floating out of the airplane and he would not let go of his camera. He had just bought it from the money he got from his, uh, oh. his mother. And I dragged him into the airplane again. By doing that, I knocked out my uh, push-to-talk switch. So I couldn't talk to the Air Force anymore. So they got a really good exercise out of getting me safe down to landing, realizing that I could listen, but I just couldn't 
talk and I saved Magnus and was able to save the airplane because I was flying in a safe height. But anyway, the trouble started already in Turkey. But I had the Turkish Air Force helping me. Just this one example. I drink tea in the morning with the Turkish air traffic controller at a Turkish military base. And he tells me all these stories about his wife and children and I listen and and then I want to fly and I get a no from the Turkish authorities for the planned route. I start to argue, but the air traffic controller, he tells me with sign language to shut off. And then he say, put down the telephone and then listen to me. When you start from my airfield, your transponder goes dead. Then you go below 500 feet and you follow the route I show you now. And then he showed me how I could fly avoiding the Turkish radar, flying really low between mountains and get these really beautiful and exciting shots for the movie I needed. And then when you're over the lake, you go up in 5,000 feet, put on the transponder and you're back on track. So just fill out the flight plan as the authorities want you to do. Add 45 minutes, fly the route you want and everything is good. And he also helped me to find a way to fly in Iran. I entered Iran without the proper permissions. So pretty quick I got in trouble. But again, people on ground thinking this journey was just ridiculous, yet also hopeful, fueling into their own desire and dreams for flight, what it actually was supposed to be like they start helping me. And I landed in Tehran International Airport between big airplanes. And one of these guys who's supposed to handle agents, they're supposed to take all your money and fuel the airplane. He turned out to be a former colonel in the Iranian Air Force. So he invited me home. He took out the Quran, opened on first page, and there was the whiskey and uh, he gave me and Magnus a whiskey. And then he asked me to put out my maps on the floor and asked me how I was going to fly the next leg on the journey because he said, I know your airplane. I'm a former refueling officer. I know you cannot make that flight. So where do you intend to land? And I was going, ah, uh, what are you talking about? <laughs> In Iran, you have these really heavy Western winds. You're famous for the heavy Western wind. I just wait for the right day and I will get to my destination. No problem. And he said, well, I know my history. I know you Europeans don't. I think you want to land here. And then he pointed at the map where the Turkish officer from before had told me there's this little hill. And on the highway, there is an extra track for trucks where they can sleep at night. But if you are coming there at daytime, you will have room to land and you will be out of radar. So you can land there and then you can have fuel with you in your cockpit and that will be no problem. But the Iranian officer, he said, don't do it. That was exactly where the American helicopters during the Gizel crisis in Tehran in the 70s crashed in a sandstorm, the locals don't like foreign aircraft being around there, for sure. You don't want to land there. And then he took me to the Iranian Ministry of Aviation and took me through all the offices. And we got all the no's 
because he wanted me to land on an official airport. He wanted the Iranian authorities to make my flight legal. Again, he thought it was a humanitarian flight. He thought that girls should fly. Even if you're Muslim, you don't think that Taliban rule is really cool. So anyway, he took me through all these offices. And in the end, just before the highest chief, there was this woman official, and she was a daughter of a mullah. And she was 30 years old, and she had this really tight scarf on. And I got so frightened from her because the people I have persuaded to support the mission until now had almost always been men. Mm. And I thought, maybe I have a problem now. And I had, because she was really sharp. She was going, okay, you want to go and help this girl in Afghanistan. You make a very expensive flight. Why don't you send the money? Give her an education. Make her be an example. Make her open her own flight school. What is art? Why are you doing this? And then she asked me, can you land on 800 meters? I said, well, what's the temperature? What time of day? And we discussed it. And I said, yes. And said, well, we have an airport under construction. If you can fly tomorrow, I can have two guys out and you can bring fuel in the cockpit of your airplane and you will go through with your mission. Wow. She, she understood that what I was doing was art. It was more than just having this girl to fly. I was telling a larger story which could reach a much broader audience than just she and me. Mm. And I really think that she wanted to open up aviation and world history in a way to be a bigger place than just these small conflicts between men that really hold humans down to the ground. And I think the beautiful thing about this flight is not so much that we have this performance figure, this female hero, going to Afghanistan and this Afghan girl's ability to be able to dream in a point of time where there's really no hope in the world. That's not really the thing. But the thing is that people who are in a very tight system have the guts to actually do something which is not completely allowed and stretch the structure to allow something more poetic to happen. And you have to remember, this is just after 9-11. The world is a scary place, yet this flight happens. This poetic song is loud in the world at that time. I, I think that's really incredible. You say that the world was a scary place. The skies were a particularly scary place. Did you feel as you crossed the radars of Iran and Afghanistan that there's a good chance you could be shot down? I mean, we, we did a calculation before we left and we were pretty sure we had like a 50-50 chance that something really bad would happen. That could be like uh, being shot out of the sky. I don't think that would be the highest risk. Not being shot down from other aircraft, but from Afghan ground forces that wanted to prove to the new rulers that they were really good at what they were doing. You know, that could be like a serious problem. Or being taken hostage 
And we knew from when we left that, you know, the Danish forces or the Danish government would not push anything to help us out. We were on our own. I mean, th this was a crisis situation and we couldn't put pressure on people who really had emergency situations for real people to handle. They shouldn't go out and help us. So we knew we were on our own. The thing is, uh, going from Iran into Afghanistan was also kind of interesting. People who have been helping us in Iran were starting showing stress and we could sort of feel that the secret police was getting closer. So we had to leave, yet we didn't have permission to end Afghanistan. Well, I had the Afghan authorities' permission, but they did not own the sky. Mm. The Americans owned the sky at the time, and I had a clear no to go. But we went, and then it was goodbye and good luck from Iranian air defense radar. And then we could see this line in the sand which was clearly visible from our Kalashnikov secure flight height. It's really difficult to hit a moving target, you know. So we were going in 7,500 feet with transponder on, all the lights on, transmitting blind. You know, I was going from blah, blah to blah, blah, heading one, two, four. And the AVAC, this eye in the sky, the source immediately and start asking questions. But, you know, when you're stressed, you can't really hear anything very good. <laughs> I mean, it's like being 13 and, you know, you are a teenager trying to get into a nightclub and you can't really hear what the security guard is <laughs> saying. You just, you just go in there. Selective hearing. Selective hearing. So on a practical level, did you just tell air traffic control that the signal was bad? Yes, yes. So I just told them, I, I can read you two is number two, it's out of five. Well, five is good and two is like really bad. So I was just uh, pretending I, I couldn't really hear what they were saying. And that discussion went on for a while. And then this beautiful thing happened that a commercial airplane flying a different height, opposite direction, with the same transponder squawk as I had got from the Iranian authorities It came at the same time and made more confusion. So the Iranian had given me a squawk of a commercial aircraft, which was allowed to fly. So again, some people in the system had helped me, giving me a squawk of another aircraft, making even more confusion. And you don't want to shoot down a passenger airliner, for sure. I mean, that's a, a bit risky thing to do, <laughs> but it helped the situation I think the beautiful thing was, again, that the Iranians have given me a squawk code on my transponder so I could be identified. And that was the same squawk that a passenger plane was having going on a legal flight in a different height. And that made confusion. So I think the AREC had other things to do. I mean, the AREC was controlling the military flights in the area. And then Herat Airport appeared. There was nobody on the tower because they were praying at the time. So we landed on this airport and the light was going away. The colors was really beautiful while the sun was setting. All these beautiful colors in the sky and really dark on the ground. And it was so beautiful. And we knew landing there that, This might very well be the very last seconds 
of our life, but it was such a beautiful, quiet moment. So I think both Magnus and I have, you know, it's okay if we go now. And then, we, you know, we were, we were landed on the runway and this goat was crossing somewhere up there and we, we were taxiing into the apron and these shadows were starting to get alive and people with carpets over their heads and they look like uh, on the news from CNN, like Taliban fighters or something coming out with Kalashnikovs. Of course, they were not Taliban. It was in Herat. It was good Afghan forces. Uh, and they came out and they just couldn't believe that this small airplane had landed and they were just, you know, what are you doing here? And I invited one of the commanders to taxi around in the airplane and he wanted to fly. And I said, well, you know, we can go tomorrow. It's kind of getting dark. And they helped me tie down the airplane next to these really battle-marked MiG aircraft. And then we were in Afghanistan. And there was no American forces. We were not thrown into prison. We could drive out of that airport. And it was beautiful. There were trees there were people living, laughing, smiling in this place that in the media looked like a total disastrous war zone. There was life on the ground. Hmm. It was beautiful. So you were close, tantalizingly close, but you still had one final challenge, which was there was a significant mountain range you had to climb to get to Kabul, wasn't there? Yes, between me and Fayal was the Hindu Kush. And it's like 500 kilometers of way too high mountains. It's the foothills of the Himalaya. And my aircraft, uh, this Piper Colt aircraft, 108 horsepower, was really built to go fishing. <laughs> y you know, it's not built for mountain flying at all. And my plan was to follow the southern route along the edge of the Himalaya where the Russians has built this beautiful concrete highway where I could land all the way. The problem was that the Americans had their airbase at Kandahar and that sort of blocked my way. And the Danish Air Force has told me, uh, or people in the Danish Air Force have told me, you, you will never get in there because things are happening at that base. They would not like to have camera on that for sure. So I had to cross through the Hindu Kush. Luckily, I had uh, Afghan airmen who could tell me about the wind conditions in the mountains, people who have been flying there lately, and they could rate you into some of their friends in the mountains to figure out how much snow is there on the runway and would there be an area which is cleared from mines and they could really help me find the right day to fly. And flying in Afghanistan now was, of course, off radar and off transponder. I was now flying illegal when I was in the air. So I had to fly low and slow, which was not difficult in the mountains because the aircraft did not have power to fly. So I had to use the wind being pushed up along the mountain ridge. So I had to fly with my wing almost on the rock. And then when I got downdraft, and you do get that in mountains, then I had to believe it will go down in the valley and then it will push you up on the other side. 
and just have enough speed, just put the nose down so you go with the wind and push through that tail rotor, which will be in the bottom of the valley to reach to the other side and then really believe the wind will go up there. There you really had to use some aviation skills to get through that labyrinth higher than the airplane can fly. So you just really have to imagine you're flying in a labyrinth and you have to use the wind power that pushes you up or pushes you down in order to get through. The Afghan pilots had told me I could follow the river and I had to watch out because I could follow the river onto a certain point and I had to change direction, otherwise I will hit a mountain. And I was counting the side valleys as I went with just like a normal map. I couldn't use my GPS very well. It didn't receive the signal because I was between the mountains. And then probably because Magnus, he was talking all the time, I missed the valley. So I am coming over a point, narrow valley. I'm pushed down. I know that the point behind me is higher than the ground in front of me. And then the valley closes so I have to turn, but I am at the point of stall. So I try to turn the aircraft. There's no more power on the airplane. I must push the nose down. So I go lower. I know the ground where I have to go back is higher. So I just go through my emergency drill. And Magnus have to open the door because at impact, the airframe will collapse. And if the door is not open, you can't get out. And we have emergency centers and our emergency pack. We put everything on us. And Magnus have to roll out of the only one door. He must roll out quickly before the airplane will start slip down the hill. Because I will have to crash it into the mountain hill. That's what I'm planning. I'm really lucky. Maybe the people around us have been praying a lot. Or it's just the wind coming in also wanting to get out. Because when I start approaching my high-speed stall to crash into the mountainside, I get this push from the wind that just, like a big hand, take us over the mountain ridge and place us on the other side where I have flying space again. It's just like, oh, what happened there? Whoa. And I'm telling Magnus, we have to go back. We have to land. Uh, we cannot go through these mountains. It's, it's impossible. And he go, oh, no. Because the thing is, Magnus is Swedish, and at that point in his life, he needed alcohol. And he knew <laughs> that if he landed at the airport before us in Shakshiran, we would not get out this winter, because the snow was closing all the highways and roads. So that would be a winter without one drop of alcohol. He did not want to go home. So he was saying, well, uh, remember just this spot before, there was this brown place, there was this brown hill and you had some really good updraft there. Maybe we'll just go back to that spot. So I went back to that spot and there was a little bit of heated air. So this bubble of air, so I could circle. And then he had read something about a Swedish balloon guy going to the North Pole and his balloon was iced down. And then he started throwing out all these things and they get a little bit of lift. So we opened the door and started throwing unnecessary things out of the airplane. We were like five feet above ground or something like that. So nobody got it in their head. And I think just from opening the door, the pressure in the cabin changes and that fooled my instrument to show that we are going up. 
So it was really like this American moment where you believe you go up and then you actually go up. <laughs> Fake it till you make it. And maybe I flew closer to the mountain range because I had hope at that point. And then suddenly I found myself above Hindu Kush and I could see almost all the way to Bamyan. And again, it was just one of those really beautiful moments. It was a perfect day. It was a uh, late afternoon and the colors was just incredible. The mountain below us was so beautiful. You couldn't see the landmines and all the scary death below you. And we flew into Bamyan and we could see people living in the halls after the Bamyan statues. And it was just like so incredible, beautiful. And we land and this beautiful Afghan woman, strong woman, she invites us into her house and we have tea with her and we just feel so welcomed by these mountain people living, the Hazara, living in Bamiyan. And she was smiling despite her family had been wiped out by Taliban and she just had so much hope for her children and the future. It was, it was a really incredible moment. Mm. Again, one of those Incredible moments. Taliban had bombed these statues like for weeks. It was really difficult to destroy this old art. And when you're standing in front of the empty coffins of where the statues have been, you could really feel that strong, strong present. I'm not religious, but there was definitely something there. You know, it was really a strong place. And the mountain people were so strong. And they also wanted that Fayel should fly. Even the special forces, you know, they were saying, maybe you should wait flying until tomorrow because we have some things going on. And so the Afghans on the ground, women and men, they were protecting the airplanes at night. They would not charge us for guarding the airplane. The military authorities were somehow letting us through. It was really this poetic song. I mean, it was more poetic than I thought when I was my strategic artistic me, when I was the artist behind it, planning the thing. It was a much more cool art project. But being there on the ground, meeting the people living this war and seeing how much hope it actually gave them that this kind of strange thing was happening that really made me believe in also the poetic power of art mm. that art can actually be this kind of strange in between thing where people of opposite opinion who sees life very differently can meet around something which is a special place and i think from making this flight to afghanistan and finally meet fayel in Kabul and see her fly over a city which was totally destroyed and see her smile in this devastating reality, just having these few seconds of incredible happiness and hope really have fueled my art since then. Also when I've been going into more serious conflict situations and makes me believe that we can use and we can have art as this poetic ground where we can have a much more open discussion about how we can build a future we can live. I mean, just imagine we are 
a crew on an airship reaches Earth with a very thin line of air around it, just really fine and thin. We have this incredible ecosystem on Earth and we are going through this empty space and it's just us. There is no planet B. We can dream ourselves to Mars, but we are on Earth and we have to figure it out. And I really think that art is one of those things where we can actually meet across differences and make it happen. I'd love to be able to say that there was a romantic Hollywood ending, but there there wasn't really with Fariel. Yeah. Or it didn't go as you might have hoped it would. Can you just explain a little bit how that story ended? Yeah. So we're having this Hollywood moment where Fayal is smiling and controlling the airplane over a bombed out city, having the moment of her life. And then we land in a reality which is a clan society, not the land of individual freedom. And a few weeks after, Fayal is invited to a flight with two Afghan helicopter pilots who are already colonels, women Afghan colonels who made their own way without an imperialistic white privileged woman coming and taking them to the sky. They made their own way into the Afghan Air Force in the 80s and they kept flying and they were flying even when I were in Afghanistan. And they had invited Fayal to a flight with them. And we had a full media setup. The Turkish Air Force would give Fayal a scholarship to their Air Force Aviation School. And then Fayal does not show up. And of course, we had made all the work with the family and all kind of safety things. And she doesn't show up. So the film I did about this journey, which is really this Hollywood story, it ends in a scream. Raphael is screaming from a sitting position to a standing me character that she could not get there. She could not come to the appointment because she had to cook a meal for her uncle. And I'm trying to make her tell me the real reason. And then she's desperate because you can't be unfriendly to a stranger. It's against her culture to be critical towards me, but I need that in my film, so I'm forcing her. So in the end, she sort of screams to me, trying to tell me that in her family, her father and mother can support that she flies. But there's an uncle, there's a young man who don't want her to fly, who who has a problem with it. And the thing is, as a family, as a clan, you cannot do something if the whole group doesn't agree on it. Mm. And I mean, that really pinpoints also why my film is an art project and not a Hollywood movie. What I really want to discuss with this art project is this dilemma between individual freedom and the collective. Fayal represents an urge to do something that resonates with our idea of individual freedom, yet her reality is a collective. And the question is, if we all are not part of a collective, I mean, we can see a planet so challenged 
by the way we have been living this idea of individual freedom, our capitalist idea of individual freedom, the way we have used airspace and all our resources to do commercial, military and individual endeavors to a degree where the collective with all the species and all life has really come to a point of breakdown. Fayel's breaking down in the end of the film, really confronting me as the symbol of the Western world, questioning this whole concept of individual freedom. And I think this is why I experience that this film is used a lot, both as this thing of fueling dreams for women. I mean, one side of my art project is being used to say, hey, see, women can do this. And then for women who are already in a situation where they are feel liberated to a certain degree, they can come to the next level of criticism in my artwork. And I think really my artwork should be criticized. This is why it's put out in the world. And my figure and also me as an artist should be criticized is because I'm also a product of this idea of individual freedom and that Also, women should be these kind of superheroes doing the same mistakes as the men have done for <laughs> thousands of years. I think really that this artwork, Smiling in a War Zone, the Danish National Art Museum have acquired this performance work. And I think the reason they have done that is not because of the Hollywoodian aspect of it, or this woman hero aspect of it, but really because it questions the foundation of the Western view, the Western gaze. And Fayal screaming back at me, even at the point where I've risked my life, crossing the icy mountains and facing the violent dragon, throwing fire at me from these fighter planes or whatever. She's sitting down, trying to explain her situation, that she is actually part of a system of more humans that have to work together and figure it out together for any of them to survive. And that's the situation of the globe. And that put the whole thing about the Western way of living and being a Muslim in the world in a total different perspective. It talks about this very thin layer of air around our globe. And I'm so happy about the new generation of artists that are really focusing on the way that other species, other living things communicate. I've just saw the graduation show from the academy and many of the artists are working with very delicate work that tunes in on seeing things and listening to other species on earth, to another sensibility, which is not this full power forward, full thruster, full emergency power mode that I have used in my art. Mm. I'm pretty much gimmicking a lot of this kind of male hero stuff in the way I've been approaching the art world which has been necessary 
I think for my generation of women artists who have been fighting a lot to get in, yet now the younger generation can tune in on a much more finer level where we start listening to our ecosystem and understand that we are part of a much larger collective. And my new art project in China is also aviation-related, but it's very much about finding out how women who finally get their chance and freedom to take to the sky, how do they and we engage with the knowledge of our planet being on the brink of collapse? Finally, we have the chance. Should we power down? Or should we just run over the cliff? I like to have that conversation. And that's why I'm still in my new project, preparing the smallest, most delicate airplane, which cannot really do the flight around China for a flight around China. Because that's where I can engage in the conversation with these female pilots who are the top of the Chinese society and really are the ones who have to make the decision about giving full combat power to get over the cliff or start listening in to the environment. How do we keep that balance about being all these billions of people on the planet and wanting individual freedom yet understanding that our ecosystem is collapsing? Mm. I think that's really the big, big question, being a woman on the planet and especially being a woman in one of those countries that's finally getting the chance to live more freely. I'm fascinated. The the passion for flight you have. I know that uh, Amelia Sanon. Yeah, Amelia Sanon. Oh, she was a great character. She was one of your earliest role models. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about her? Yeah, I mean, you have to imagine we are back in uh, 1910 in Copenhagen. It's all dark and women are confined to their homes. They, they can't really enter the workspace. I mean... They, they can do like really shitty jobs. Esther Nielsen and Emilia Sanon, they enter the theater. It's the same time as movies start. So movie production starts in Copenhagen and it's big in Copenhagen. I think it's interesting with these two ladies. It's fun art with Emilia Sanon versus fine art with Esther Nielsen. It's a little bit like in visual arts where you can choose Andy Warhol or Duchamp as two different lines. So Esther Nielsen, she goes into the more artistic silent movies and she's really this film star. But Emilia Sanon, she chooses to be an action hero. Actually, she creates a space for herself within the silent movie where she can do all kinds of wild things. She can be sexy. She can love everybody. She can grab the guy she wants. Her action figure is called Panoptra and I've read more places that she is the first action hero in a series of action films. And it's before Hollywood starts determine what the storyline is. So she is a bad guy. I mean, she's a bad, bad woman and she wins every time. She's so cool. I mean, she get run over by trains. She's hanging under rolling trains and she's doing the action herself. She's flying, she's crawling out and having fights on airplanes, falling off airplanes and parachuting down. She's flying airplanes without a certificate. And she's really a wild, wild woman. She's actually on the graveyard here 
outside your windows are beautiful trees and her grave is here. She crashed and died when she was 40. She jumped with a parachute that didn't deploy in front of her daughter. I was really scared being 40. You know, in my 40s, I was really scared to die like that <laughs> because I started having children myself. And when I f flew in Afghanistan, I didn't have children at the time. I was It was sort of like a exercise to grow up in order to be able to have children. I thought I was going to be pregnant with Magnus, but he ran off to a beach in Goa. <laughs> Can't blame him. <laughs> Could you imagine yourself doing something like that now that you have children? Uh, in 2011, I had five children, one of my own, and a beautiful, handsome husband. And I went to Libya on the ground alone in the Libyan war, pregnant in the fifth month. And my husband told me, you are not coming back if anything happens to our child. Can you tell me about the Libyan experience? Well, the Libyan war, it was after I painted the prime minister to Folketinget, which is our parliament. I painted the official portrait of our former prime minister, Anders Fogh Rasmussen, who became the secretary general. And it's really like, it looked a little bit like a Kim Jong-il painting or something like that, propagandistic painting. And it was really this kind of democratic conceptual idea of putting a lot of elements into a picture and the school classes could stop in front of that and discuss what was going on in Denmark at the time. Can you describe the painting for those who haven't seen it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really strong colors and you have this almost orange-faced <laughs> guy in the middle of it and a sand landscape and a forest really crushed into the side of the painting, like a Danish green-green uh, forest. And then there's a Hercules military transport plane flying into the picture and could look like it was cutting the throat of the prime minister. And this painting really fueled the debate about what can art do and how ugly can a picture possibly be. But the great thing was that it really became a discussion about what images do we have of this leader who was instrumental in putting Denmark into wars. How were you selected to be the one to portray him? Because you had... I was a video artist. I was a conceptual <laughs> artist. Uh, so how do, why did they even suggest I could be like a painter for that? I mean, that's a mystery. Um when I was asked, I mean, we were 20 artists being asked to send in material. And then I was selected after he talked to me for 20 minutes or so. I thought that could be an opportunity for me to get close to him, who had been working so much and putting Denmark out into all these wars. And I wanted to help my two Afghan helicopter friends, the two sisters in the sky, in Kabul because they wanted to do this flight school for female pilots. And I thought if I could paint this guy and then maybe he could do something because he was the secretary general of NATO. So I could use him for developing my art project with the two sisters. 
So, it, I mean, it fitted into what I was doing otherwise, and it was an opportunity to open up my artistic work, giving access to a completely different level. I think art should not be in a special compartment of society. I think art should be everywhere. And as foreign policy is really a part of how the world is structured right now, I think art should also be there. So we should have artistic discussions and artists should have access to war zones and political decision-making in order to be able to do art that can push society forward. But you two could hardly be further politically apart. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's probably what was the attraction as well. I mean, he could use me as a female and he could show himself as open-minded of engaging So, I mean, he could definitely use me for propaganda purposes and I could use that propaganda for my purposes towards getting my goals done in my artistic work. And it gave me access to Libya. So because of the portrait with him, I was suddenly in the middle of the battle in Syria as a war artist. And Denmark did not have soldiers on the ground. So there was a special position to be in. Other countries have official war artists. Denmark did not have that. And I was pushing a program to give artists access to our foreign policy at the time. So I was there pregnant in the fifth month. And that gave me a special perspective on the war, a more Gaia perspective. I really felt sort of part of like the universe in a bigger larger mental circle and when I watched the young soldiers running into the battle I could see how they have been running into battles always in human history and the women running out from the battle zones pregnant and giving birth next to guys dying and and it really fueled the sense of the absurdity of war that we really need to bring it to an end. But also this sense of the human condition in it. You know, it's really time to think differently. And we have been being on this superhero mythology for so long, and it really put us into a place we don't want to be. I mean, we lose our humanity in this. Mm. We lose the living condition. I mean, when we break down the ecosystems we take our breath away. We can make really cool architecture projects on the moon. We can plan cities on Mars. It will be too late. Terraforming on Mars is so hard compared to preserving this precious thing we got here. Mm. You know, seeing in the military hospital 50 kilometers outside Syria where they're bombing like hell and all the casualties are coming in, And in the middle of it is this woman giving birth to her baby. And, you know, just seeing the joy on her face and the helpers around her, that little bubble of extreme happiness, of smiles in the middle of a war zone. A war zone which is trying to push away a really horrible dictator but is also in the middle of creating a much worse situation for all the people living there because this instability that war creates for generations will haunt 
the people living there. But still you have this little bubble of life. And I think it's about time to get back to what is the essence of life instead of the joy of the moment of facing danger. The joy of push through our fears in the masculine way have been fueling our desires for so long that we forgot the incredible beauty of love, which is also born through pain and fear. And you can live a full life feeling the fire in your body, the love and desire in this more round way. Mm. You don't have to be that pointed all the time. I mean, I, I really think that that moment there in the emergency room with blood on the floor and dying young men all around and then this little life coming out into the world and these calm, beautiful smiles on everybody around. I mean, it was just so beautiful. The scream of the baby on top of the scream of the young. <laughs> Women are producing soldiers. When we raise our children, we are raising consumers. We are raising the next generation to destroy themselves even more than we have prepared the road for destruction. And we have to change that. And I think that art, the architects that create the worlds around us, the songwriters, the scientists, the people who pave the road underneath us, we all have to join forces to recreate and re-listening to life on our planet. We have 10 years. That's not a planet B. And if art and our soul is not part of it, this journey is going to be awful. With that perspective, do you find it hard to engage with art that is not addressing the elephant in the room at the moment? I think that art that concentrates on really small beautiful things, art that go down into detail, artists that keep digging into the same hole, exploring a specific color, or in the larger scale, doing really small artistic investigations are also part of this joint force. Mm. Because concentrating into small things and not addressing political hotspots is also showing that other way. I think that artists that are purely interested in digging into beauty is also preparing that much more beautiful world we could take. So I think we have to understand that as in biological systems, it really is about diversity. Diversity is the key word for the art world now. We really have to avoid these mega stars and this stardom thing. We really have to go out and enjoy all these micro artistic systems around. And some artists really have to deal with the big issues and the other ones maybe can concentrate on showing what it can be. But what we all have to do, I think, 
I really think we have to paint the world of tomorrow because if we can't imagine it, we can't get there. And I think one way of imagining the future is listening in to all this beautiful conversation around us that we have not been able to listen to because we were going supersonic, enjoying ourselves. Just a couple of questions as we draw to a close. When you ended up painting your seven meter long depiction of the Libya battle and that sketch that you sent to the Museum of National History resulted in them wanting to end the relationship and not officially release it. And I noted that the general major of the military said about your piece, it does not reflect the actually pretty happy ending of the war. How did you respond to that? And did you feel that you were misunderstood or was that exactly what you were going for? It's so interesting that everybody won a Hollywood ending. Even as a soldier, you must know that you cannot bomb to a better society. I mean, it just never happens. I had hoped for a conversation all the way because I really think that engaging in conversations also with the people you don't agree with is actually the way forward. But it ended up being a happy ending from an artistic point of view because being fired fueled the discussion in the public eye. It, it was uh, released at an art institution in Copenhagen with a director who had been working with the broadcast company. And he understood that when I do my art, I do an action, a performance piece in reality. Then I take it to a discussion level where I use the media as a kind of artistic material. And then in the end, it should end up in an art museum where you have another reflection time. So I have these three steps. And he jumped in in this media stage where being rejected and being censored by the military and the original museum gave an opportunity for a public discussion. And the art painting became not a battleground, even it depicted a battleground, but it became a podium for different perspectives to meet. I had the viewpoint from the military aviator. I had the viewpoint from a Gaddafi supporter. I had the viewpoint from the medical worker on the ground. I had the viewpoint from a guy living next to me from Nairobi with origin in Libya. All these people had a position in the painting and they could meet up in front of that painting and have the discussion, which was reflected in the media. And it really became a really good media ground where we were outside the political discussion, which usually gets into this battleground where you are not really listening to the other guy's standpoint. So I think being rejected by the general and censored by the museum but being taken in by another museum who could see the possibility for a public discussion in the art bubble was really a great opportunity for this art world. Now it ended up in the Danish War Museum, 
where it hopefully will be for many, many years. And again, I hope at one time they will scan the image and see the changes I made, because that also reflects how the war changed during these six years I painted it. The same way that I hope they will scan the image I made of the prime minister, because I forced him or I asked him to make changes and all the changes are made in a way that will show up on an x-ray. So I think this idea that art is really made in a dialogue and changes within that dialogue is a very interesting perspective on art. I wondered if we also look at your project Ramt or Hit in English, where you depicted 15 Danish politicians having been wounded um, with well, they are not really being wounded. They are borrowing wounds from wounded in the conflicts they have sent the Danish soldiers into. Mm. And that was really a project I did together with an artist who had been a soldier and damaged in Danish foreign policy. And he thought that my romantic Hollywoodian approach to art was really not cutting it. And he thought that I could help him have a voice. Veterans was not really listened to at the time. The Danish wars were painted as beautiful, humanistic gestures into the world. Yet, wars are war. And this former soldier, he really wanted to have that discussion. And we were having an exhibition in a part of Denmark which doesn't get attention from the media so we saw opportunity. The Pope was about to be elected. And you always have these days around where the Pope is elected, where the newspaper hold the front page. So right there, we pushed these images where I took war wounds I have painted from Danish wars and added them to ministers who have sent Danish soldiers into war from different governments, both the red and the blue governments since 1994. And it was really like World War One wounds where the jaws shut away and the faces opened. So it was really like horrible, grotesque uh, wounds of really well-known, decent politicians. So we gave them to Berlingske Tidene and we were lucky. The Pope wasn't elected and we got the front page. And then we got a media storm. So on top of that, I painted the prime minister in this really propagandistic painting where we just needed the children with the flowers and it would have been perfect for North Korea. <laughs> but that gave me a different level of discussing because suddenly all the politicians had war wounds in their face and they hit the front page. And then we got the television shows, the morning show, the evening shows, all these kind of things. So I got the scene and as in my film, I leave the scene in the end for somebody who does not have a voice. And in this case, it was the wounded soldier artist who now could tell his story and we got the media for the exhibition with less known artists who could show a more diverse picture of the Danish wars and not just the mega stars who usually get the museum white cubes to display there, often to <laughs> well-recognized dancers. Yeah. So it was really taking 
the wounds of the wars and put in on the VIPs. And that got the media attention. And then I could leave the floor for the soldier who had the experience that could tell about how the war get handled down to his children and what it's like living with PTSD and how we did not recognize and how he did not feel that we were standing behind the actual costs of that kind of foreign policy. And that is that you get a militarized society. You damage society by using that kind of political tool. And I had a platform at the time and I could leave that for other artists to give a more nuanced uh, image. And I think that's really also what I do a lot in my work, that I sort of put my art out and then leave the scene for the discussion. I call, for example, my painting performative paintings. And it's really because I made the painting and it made a lot of noise. And then there is a performative discussion in front of the paintings after I leave the stage. And I think that's really interesting. I think it's really interesting how a quite ugly figurative painting can fuel so much discussion. And I'm sure that the reason that paintings and cartoon drawings have been used so much for propagandistic and political work in the past is because it really works. And I think it's interesting to use elements from propaganda, but turn it into a situation where it actually creates a democratic discussion. Mm. So I really hope that my artwork can fuel democratic discussion, but from a less hardliner political. So it's more conversation than fight. Final question, Simona. The way you discuss your work, your performative art, you're almost speaking about it with a great level of distance, like a third person. Your work has received a lot of criticism, great reviews, but also a lot of jarring criticism. How are you able to maintain a healthy level of separation and still feel good about the work that you're doing and feel that you've achieved what you've wanted to achieve without it getting too personal? How have you been able to form that resilience over this long period? I think it's uninteresting for me to do art that, I mean, if people are clapping all around, I do something wrong. So when I go out, I know I've done something that have to create discussion. And in order for people to realize something about our Western perspective, they need to start shooting at me. So when I enter this kind of media storm, which is usually around what I do, I have to feel that the shooting is coming pretty much equal from both sides of the political spectrum. So if I get the flag and the heart bombardment too much from the left, I knew that my target spot was not... (laughs) put right and maybe I should open another performative side or open a little bit so I get more shooting from the other side because I think it's really when I put myself as an artist on the line and fuel that discussion that we learn more about ourselves and I learn more from it and I've been so lucky that also more scholars 
that it's not just like the heat of the moment media response I'm getting, but I'm also getting more criticism from scholars who are writing PhDs and things like that. And they are also really critical around it and use time to analyze my work in order to criticize the position of the Western artist and maybe also the feminists, white feminists, for example. And I think that's really useful because we need that kind of criticism in order to get more clever and move on. So you've been able to successfully kill the ego component of things. It, it feels like you don't need the validation. Well, I have a great mother who made me believe in myself in the way that it's really good to be vulnerable. And it's when you can feel also pain and sadness and humiliation and shame, if you are able to be in that area where you can actually feel what it does to you, that's when you have a possibility of growing. And she gave me a lot of love. I mean, my parents gave me a lot of love. And it's okay to be wrong. And you have to make mistakes in order to grow. That's really, really important. I mean, I'm not doing art in order to prove a perspective. I'm doing art in order to learn. I mean, I see myself as a scientist uh, experimenting. But of course, I'm trying to experiment also in a way that I'm not damaging too much around me. But every time we go out and do something, we risk not just for ourselves, but also for others. I think it's almost impossible to do something important in the world without that it has collateral damage to a certain point. But you have to stand up and you have to be responsible for the damage you do to others. And you do. Well, I've found your bravery both as an artist and as an individual, most inspiring Simona. So I thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Thank you. Nordic Portraits is a series by me, Ben Catford. The music was composed by Nina Liu and the visual identity by Copenhagen-based studio Frame. To learn more about today's guest and all the others from this season, visit nordicportraits.net. You can also follow us on Instagram and remember to rate and subscribe on iTunes so we can get the word out. Thanks for listening.